0: Uh, brainstorming this conference, we realized that we didn't have the expertise across all of these disciplines uh, to know who some very good speakers would be to address this group. So the very first job we had was to put together a group of advisors across disciplines and uh, a number of respected members of the ASA across the country that we talked with. And what we said to these people was, in your discipline, who would you travel halfway around the world to hear speak? Now, that's a, that's a tough one. But they sat down and thought about that, and I think we have a group of some of the very, very finest speakers that you can imagine to address this uh, topic. And since at least half of you have traveled about halfway around the world to get here, I guess probably it's about true. But this evening we're going to have a special treat our speaker this evening is an anthropologist, and not just an anthropologist, but a Christian anthropologist, one who is active professionally and who is active as a Christian. I don't know if we have had a plenary speaker uh, who is an anthropologist in a long time. Maybe, I don't know if ever, but I certainly am not aware of one. This is going to be a special treat then. When we talked with people about anthropology, uh, Thomas Headland's name kept coming up, and people said, you've got to get him as one of your speakers. And so I got in touch with him. He very kindly uh, agreed, and uh, we're very happy to have him with us. His professional credentials are, are really substantial. He has his Ph.D. in anthropology from University of Hawaii. He's an elected fellow of the American Anthropology Association, Adjunct member of the faculty at University of Texas, Arlington. He also, in the summer, lectures in, uh, in North Dakota, University of North Dakota. He's a member of SIL, Summer Institute in Linguistics, which is associated with Wycliffe Translators, the Bible Translating Group. And so you'll see SIL often associated with his name. But he's been very active also in the American Anthropological Association, the professional group of anthropologists, and appreciated by his his secular colleagues. And I'm not aware of any discipline in the sciences for which it's more difficult for a Christian to be appreciated by his secular colleagues than anthropology. And I think maybe by the end of the evening you'll appreciate the unusual character of this gentleman, what he has to say to us. He has told me that he will be here for the entire meeting. This is Friday through Monday, and he'll be extremely disappointed if you don't sit with him at lunch or at dinner or uh, between sessions, chat with him, because he enjoys that very much, and he's he's looking on this as an opportunity to get to know you and to serve God by his presence here. Now anthropologists perhaps by nature are people people. <laughs> and so we're going to take a little bit of a different approach this evening to this presentation. And what we will do is make it perhaps a little bit less of a presentation than a conversation. And so uh, Dr. Hedlund will spend perhaps about a half an hour or so with uh, some introductory remarks, getting you into his discipline, some of his other thoughts. And then I'll suggest a few questions to him that I suspect you would like to have asked, and uh, at least if you had the information, you certainly would have asked. And uh, then we'll give you a chance at the end as well to ask questions that are uh, in front of your minds uh, as well. Let's welcome Dr. Thomas Hedlund, please.
1: all In 1986, Jan and I, after living for 24 years with the Agta people in the Philippines, uh, the kind of people we want to go to, uh, then uh, in uh, 1986, uh, we went. We, we felt that God sent us... primitive, there we go, boy, I can hear myself now, yeah, go over <laughs> here, uh, a primitive group, hunter-gatherers, uh, uh, they numbered 600 people, and they lived in uh, the largest rainforest in the Philippines, uh, they, the Philippine government didn't know they existed, and uh, they uh, lived uh, pretty far out in the forest, and my wife and I uh, had been married uh, uh, five months when we uh, finally got there, found them and started living with them. We lived with them for 24 years. These people didn't wear clothes. Uh, when we went there, they'd never seen a white woman. They'd seen a few white men. And uh, they spoke their own unique language. had never been studied by any outsider. never been written down. And uh, we were with Wycliffe Bible Translators, so we did the regular uh, program that Wycliffe uh, sends its people out to do and uh reduced the, learned the language and reduced it to writing and it's, uh, they have their own official alphabet now and quite a uh at least 25% of those people can read and uh, uh by the way at least at least 25% of the families are now serious practicing christians so we're anyway there's where we spent the first uh, quarter of a century of our married lives living with the primitive people then uh we moved back here to the states in 1986 Uh, We eventually came to realize, uh, to think, it's just a faith statement now, uh, but we came to slowly uh, come to the realization that it seemed that God had sent us to a second tribe of people. And uh, this second tribe of people are a lot less primitive than the Agta hunter-gatherers in the Philippines, but they were a lot more savage. And they all had on the end of their name, PhD. <laughs> and uh, there we were, carried into exile. It's God's fault. And uh, SIL had sent me to go do a, a. SIL is a sister organization of Wycliffe, SIL Summer Institute of Linguistics. Wycliffe Bible Translator doesn't work overseas in these countries. You join Wycliffe, and then you're seconded to the sister organization, SIL. Uh, a name like Wycliffe Bible Translators would not be very good for getting visas into some of these countries. So that's why the the, the other name. Uh, here's a, a favorite verse of mine. Uh, uh, this is from Jeremiah, chapter 29. Jeremiah wrote this to the Jews who were taken captive and exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And here's what Jeremiah wrote. You can imagine these exiles uh, in living in Babylon. Here's what Jeremiah wrote. The God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. I don't know what those poor Jews thought, but they, they were all taken there as prisoners. And I don't think they were taken on Greyhound buses. And however they went there, it wasn't air conditioned. I think they walked, and maybe they even walked barefooted, and maybe they even had chains on them. And then they get this letter from Jeremiah, who uh, they didn't really like much anyway, and uh, telling them to pray for the people in that city, uh, that God will bring peace to it. And, uh, so uh, it took me and Janet uh, a while to realize that we'd been, quote, unquote, exiled to the Secular University Academy and specifically to the anthropology uh, community and uh, most specifically to a particular tribe called the American Anthropological Association. There are 11,000, 12,000 members of that tribe, and uh, they are quite secular. Uh, Now, SIL had asked me to go do a doctoral program in anthropology in 1978, This was because the attacks from anthropologists had reached a crescendo against SIL and against missionaries in general for going out and destroying these cultures by imposing their silly Western religion down the throats of these happy people that uh, were living quite fine on their own and didn't need missionaries. And uh, it, it got pretty bad. Lives were threatened. SIL people were threatened, maybe not by anthropologists, but by the people that, anthropologists had worked up into uh, anger about this and uh, hundreds and hundreds of articles came out in newspapers, especially in Latin America and even in the USA against missionaries and specifically against Wycliffe and SIL and uh, so SIL uh, leaders said we've got to get some uh, some uh, of our people to go do PhDs in anthropology so I was one of those asked to do that. I already had a BA in anthropology uh, when, uh, before I joined Wycliffe and uh, I'd always wanted to be an anthropologist since I, since I was a child and uh, so I was one of those that was chosen so if I may use the metaphor I think I was roughly sort of in a category similar to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego and Mordecai and maybe even like Esther uh, and Daniel when they found themselves appointed in various official positions in Babylon and later uh, maybe in Assyria. Uh, in fact, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, at least, were assi- were assigned to do Ph.D. programs there in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar's uh, lieutenants. And they eventually became his special advisors. Uh, so there, these people are role models for me, and I pass that on to you in the few minutes we have here uh, tonight, uh, to think about that. If God puts you, in that place, or me, maybe that's where we're supposed to be, and, uh, I don't know if I'd want to go to Babylon, I don't know if I'd wish my, you, or, or even my own children or grandchildren going, and I'm not sure if I'd want my grandchildren to study PhD in anthropology work, but I love it, and it's for me, and that's what I've been doing for the last, uh, 25, 30 years, actually, I've been doing it since I, before I even met my wife, because I was majoring in anthropology in college, um, Uh, when I graduated from high school, I had, by the time I graduated from high school, I'd read hundreds of anthropology books and uh, loved the discipline. I didn't know how to spell the word anthropology, but uh, I read it all the time. And uh, even when I uh, – if you ask some of my high school friends uh, about it, they'll tell you about what a pest I was because I was always talking about uh, tribal people to them. And uh, it's a wonder I ever finished high school because I didn't want to study anything – like science or math or anything. just wanted to study uh, anthropology. Um, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, my brother and my sister and I had wonderful, loving parents. We grew up in Southern California. Uh, as we were growing up, they were nice parents, but they never went to church, my parents. Uh, never even once, not even for Easter or Christmas, as we were growing up. And uh, us three children grow uh, didn't go to church uh, very often either. Once in a while, my dad would try to get us to go. And my brother went more often than I did. But uh, uh, most of the time, we didn't go at all. Uh, then when uh, us three children were in our teens, we started going to church. And uh, eventually, all five of us became Christians, my mom and my dad and us three children. And it was, we had a good family before, except for the three bratty teenagers uh, but once we found the Lord, uh, yeah, wonderful things happened in our family. But I'm not going to tell you that story tonight because I don't have time, but it's, a, it's another God story, uh, of how the Lord saved all of us. Uh. Uh, now, I also wanted to tell you tonight, but I'm not going to have much time to do that, of the, how Janet and I gained the friendship of this, the Agta people in the Philippines. They liked us from the start, and we had a lot of fun with them. They taught us there helped us learn their language and took us uh, around with them as they traveled through the forest. They were nomadic, and Janet and I didn't have children when we got there, so we just traveled around with them. And even after our first uh, daughter was born, we just carried her on our back just like they carried their children on their back and traveled around with them. Once our second and third children were born, we slowed down quite a bit, but uh, uh, we still lived with them for 24 years, and we go back every other year for a semester and we were there early this year and uh, I've done a major uh, research project uh, my wife and I have worked on for 47 years now of the Ogta demography, the population dynamics and we published uh, a book on that, University of Florida published our book on that in 1998 and then this last uh, November we published the complete database my major contribution to science uh, uh, me and Janet, was public, publishing the entire database of the population of these people in, uh, over the last 47 years. And in that is every recorded every single birth and death and migration and marriage and divorce. And uh, it's, a, it's a gold mine because no anthropologist, nobody anywhere has ever done this for a so-called primitive uh, population. And uh, that's now available on the internet. People can download the data for free and uh, I'm thankful to get that finished Um, starting in 1979 uh, I started interacting intensely with secular anthropologists at conferences and when I was home on visits in the states we still lived in the Philippines till 86 but I was back and forth I gained the friendship of many secular anthropologists now anthropologists have a history of antipathy towards missionaries and so Here's a question. Could God use a missionary to crack that barrier? Well, uh, I hope so. And uh, I'm I think uh, I'm one of those that have been able to do that. There are a lot of anthropologists that for some reason God gave me favor in their eyes. There are also quite a number of anthropologists that hate my guts. And uh, uh, so i A little bit of time we're going to have here tonight. I hope to share some stories uh, of examples of this. Uh, uh, Let's see. Oh, I want to say uh, here, whether any anthropologists, whether or not any anthropologists come to know Christ because of us, I'd like it if they would, but whether they do or not, I think it 's my my mission to serve them and pray for them, just like Jeremiah told the exiles in Babylon to pray for those pagans in babylon and uh, that 's what Janet and I try to do and we try to serve them and love them, and we don 't have any trouble loving them uh, for some reason uh, and, uh, uh, Here's a favorite Bible verse of mine. I'll share a couple of the two or three Bible verses tonight, besides the one in Jeremiah. It's in 1 Peter 2.12. This is, this is another verse that's a bottom line part of my philosophy. And uh, here's where Peter wrote to um, his friends. He said, Dear friends, 1 Peter 2.12, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds... And glorify God on the day He visits us. And, uh, uh, it's a life first to me, and I really try to do that. Uh, and, um, uh, I have been slandered viciously by a certain anthropologists that oppose me. And maybe I'll have time to tell you a couple examples of that tonight. And, uh, um, I've shared some of this with uh, John also, so if we have time, and, he uh, uh, will ask me a few questions. He may ask me to uh, tell you uh, some of the instances I've shared with him. Um, so let me tell, uh, tell you uh, uh, for five minutes or so, five or ten minutes, uh, read to you uh, a few of the stories I've written out. Uh, these are God's stories. To me, they're awesome stories. And you're a friendly audience, so you already know when I say this, I'm, I'm, these are faith statements I'm making. Uh, I mean maybe Richard Dawkins is right and there isn't any God and I'm just making all this up but anyway I believe it so I pass it on to you and since uh, you've come all this way to this meeting tonight most of you probably uh, hold the same theistic world view that I hold to you're easy to talk to compared to talks I've given at anthropology conferences Uh, here's a, a statement from report uh, each time I go to an anthropology conference I write a report to my boss my quickly finished boss so that what I did so here's one uh, uh, when I was at the AAA meeting in 1995 when I say AAA I find out American anthropological encounters with two Christian anthropologists Janet and I Janet often goes with me to these meetings for my body part <laughs> not a, a karate expert, but she carries, i you never see you with my wife, you say, why are you, Jan, why are you carrying that big, purse around you, there, there, you know, and maybe well, it was and she said, well, you has been pulled out a bread roll, I said, what's that for, and I said, well, I said, this is my husband's mouth, and I see him about to say something he shouldn't, <laughs> she's not here tonight, so who knows what I'll say, <laughs> Janet and I met up with Mark, I wrote this in the book, Janet and I met up with Mark, a young PhD candidate in the leading anthropology department who came to the Christian network get-together and who our son Steve led to Christ several years ago. Um, There is a group of us that uh, I and uh, three or four other Christian anthropologists organized in 1987, called network of Christian anthropologists. And we meet once a year, every year, at the annual meeting of the AAA. So that's what I'm talking about, this network of It's a small group of us, I can assure you that, but we meet every year. And we're in the program, and it's open to anybody who comes. Sometimes sit down and follow us, come in out of curiosity or um, whatever. Um, But Jen and I met this uh, young man named Mark. Uh, Mark is ooh. <laughs> Mark is still a Christian Mark is still a Christian. I <laughs> um I wrote this in 1995 Mark is still a Christian but a secret one. Mark fears that if anyone finds out now about his faith, he'll never be able to lend a tenure a tenure track professorship job. Uh, this is, I've heard this often before, by the way, from other Christian anthropologists. Janet and I had a refreshing encounter with another Christian on on Saturday night. This is 1995. We were sitting in the hotel restaurant when Janet suggested I invite a blind woman that she saw sitting alone to join us at our table. Uh, her name, I'll call her Susan. These are all anonymous names I'm using here. And Susan uh, asked how... The meeting of the Christian anthropologist had been. When I asked her how she had connected me with that, she said, I know you. You're a Christian, aren't you? Uh, by the way, one thing that makes me uh, visible as a Christian is because, uh, I mean, I don't go around uh, passing out tracts or something like uh, some of the people in my home church, a rather conservative church up in Duluth, Minnesota, they sometimes wonder, they can't understand why Little, their little Tommy boy is going to these secular anthropology meetings. And so it's hard to explain to these, some of these people. They don't, they're not college type. And so I, I, I know I probably shouldn't do this, but I remember telling Mrs. Smith one time, because she wants to talk to her husband about whether I should be, even be supported any longer. She says, Tommy, why do you go to those anthropology meetings? Those people are secular humanists, you know, which, of course, they are. And I says, well, Mrs. Smith... When Janet and I go to these meetings, you know what we do? Mrs. Smith, we wait until about 2 o'clock in the morning. And after everybody's finally gone to sleep in this huge hotel, 5,000 it, why then we sneak out of our hotel room and we go downstairs and we go into all the bathrooms and we put out tracks on the toilet seats. (laughs) Well, I don't know if Mrs. Smith took me serious or not, but she laughed anyhow, and uh, I still get my little bit of support from that church. Uh, but that's not what we do, but we, but people know this because I. one thing I do do is I uh, insist on having on my name badge, which I have in my pocket here, uh, when I go to conferences, my home institution as Summer Institute of Linguistics because uh, they're the ones that are paying me to go there and... Uh, um, and also, I'm going there to represent SIL, and, uh, it's just a way, an oblique way of me, uh, indicating to them that, uh, uh, where I stand on the God question. And of course, when they, when I started going to these meetings and they saw I was with SIL, people just sort of, uh, freaked out because they couldn't figure out what I was doing there. And people would ask me what I was doing there, and uh, I said, well, I'm here giving a science paper. And they said, well, aren't you with SIL? And uh, there are a lot of anthropologists still today I'm only slightly exaggerating when they say you can tell an SIL person uh, in fact you can tell any kind of a missionary uh, who they are when you look, if you just look at them sideways look in their ear and if you see daylight you know they're, they're a missionary <laughs> and, uh, so I like to go there and uh, the way I give the testimony is not by putting out tracts I mean I would be glad to give a person a tract if they ask me but by doing a good science paper, doing good science period. Um, well, let's see. I'm going to run out of time here, and I want to uh, uh, John to uh, interact with me up here in front of you, too. So let me uh, do a couple. Let me go on here for five more minutes here. Uh, I've had some personal setbacks. So here's uh, uh, something I wrote in... Uh, uh, this same report, 1995. Uh, a bigger setback came to me just yesterday, November 27, 1995. This was written. I received a letter from the chair of the Department of Anthropology at UTA, University of Texas at Arlington, uh, informing that me that beginning next year I will no longer be allowed to teach anthropology at UTA. Now I've been teaching there for nine years. At that time, and I was actually adjunct professor, adjunct assistant professor when I started in '86. And uh, then promoted to adjunct associate a couple years later, and then adjunct full professor. And uh, I didn't know this at the pro- at the time, but I had by the, by 1995 I had published more uh, anthropological publications than the rest of the anthropology faculty combined. And uh, so there was they had to get rid of me anyway. And uh, they said in their letter, we uh, nothing personal. Uh, Dr. Headland, but you're with SIL and SIL is involved in the destroying of indigenous cultures and so we don't want you in our department anymore. Now I still have my adjunct faculty position there because it was in the Department of Linguistics and they like me but I'm not allowed to teach anthropology there and so I hardly do anything at UTA anymore except occasionally serve on doctoral committees for linguistic students who uh, ask me to do that. Um,
0: is it time for me to interrupt you with a question Don?
1: yeah go ahead I think I'm I mean let's talk for a little while and uh, I think there are uh, before we run out of time at least
0: a couple of of, uh, things that you've done that people here know about and I think it would be nice if you could fill them in just a little bit with some details and also indicate how your faith might have uh, might have influenced your being a part of the process and also how you carried it out. I'm thinking first of all of uh, back about uh, 25 years or so ago. Uh, you may recall, as I did, a newspaper splash of a Stone Age group in the Philippines that had been discovered that had never had contact with modern human beings. You remember that, that story. If you'd explain your part in that, that would be really good, and maybe
1: why you were a part of that. Yeah. Well, in, in 19... That was 1986. Well, to go back a little farther, in 1972, the, uh, there were big headline news in newspapers all over the world, and I mean not just the Western world, but even the Eastern world and everywhere, of the discovery, uh, the famous discovery of a tribe of Stone Age people living in deep in the rainforest of the Philippines. And they were called Tasadai or Tasadai. And uh, it was the cover story of National Geographic uh, up until the 1980s. That was the most famous cover story in National Geographic magazine ever published uh, on this lost Tasadai tribe. And it was on national television on on all the programs for, for months. And all of you probably heard it, but it's... Uh, uh, You may not remember it today. Then in 1986, uh, I mean, I was in the Philippines throughout that whole thing. I never saw these people, but I was reading about it and uh, I was pretty skeptical of it because I was working among a uh, hunter-gatherer group in the rainforest in a different area and so uh, I figured that uh, the stories were being exaggerated. Um, Then in 1986, uh, right after President Marcos had been uh, overthrown and fled the Philippines scientists were now able to go in there and look, well they didn't go in at first but a Swiss journalist went in there in uh, April of 1986 and he, he actually went and he found these caves where these people lived but there hadn't been anybody there, there was nothing there these were just abandoned caves and uh, he uh, had some photographs of these people so he he eventually found them, they were living in nearby towns, they were Some of them own jeepneys, they're driving around and farming and living like regular Filipinos and driving in uh, jeeps and so forth. So he came back and uh, 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 the Swiss journalist published this story and it just exploded again in headline news all over the Western world, at least at this time. And uh, so the American Anthropological Association was getting all these calls from people from everywhere saying, what is this all about? You're the, you're the experts here. Is, the, is this story uh, the biggest hoax of the century or what's going on? And the American Anthropological Association uh, contacted me and the leaders said, uh, we are going to form an uh, investigation of this and we want you, Dr. Headland, to lead this investigation, to be the head of it. And... Uh, so um, I, uh, I thought, oh, I don't know if I want to get involved in this or not, but I asked my SIL bosses, and they all said to go ahead and do it. They all like public hangings, just like everybody else, I suppose. <laughs> so uh, I did get involved in that, and uh, uh, the, trip, the, the AAA uh, wanted me to come a year later and present this whole thing at, at their annual meeting, and so I did. There were hundreds of people in the room, that was a meeting that went on for nine hours in November of 1989. And the media people were in there, lots of photographers and uh, reporters and lots of anth- hundreds of anthropologists listening to this. And I had 19 people on the panel, brought several Filipinos from the Philippines uh, that the AAA gave me grant money to bring Filipinos there and uh, then the American Anthropological Association published my book on that a year later or a couple years later, 1992 titled The Tassadai Controversy and uh, well, it's just me, little Tommy boy but this this book got reviewed in lots and lots and lots of places so this put me kind of on the map and uh, you guys don't know me and so you don't know whether I'm Bragging, or but if I am, I hope I'm bragging about God because I think God set this thing up. And so, lots and lots of things. I, it, in spite of me being a uh, one of those funny kind of people, uh, you know, the ones where you see daylight when you look in their ear, uh, I gain more and more respect in the American Anthropological Association, and it's lots and lots of things they've called on me to do. So there I am. I've kind of got a seat. At the table. In fact, they elected me a fellow of the AAA uh, uh, about that time, probably because of that thing. But they've called on me to organize other major e- e- events for them. And uh, so there I am uh, trying to serve the people in Babylon.
0: Tom, do you think that the reason for the choice? Uh, may have been your expertise with peoples in the Philippines, or recognition of integrity that you uh, displayed.
1: Well, one thing is that uh, I'm am the leading hunter-gatherer specialist on on the Philippines, so they, somebody would have thought of that. But I had I think I think they see me as a, a person. I'm not sure how many of them saw me as a person of integrity at that time, but they they do today because they. When it, when it got done, I did it, God did it right through me and, and it, by the AAA publishing my book on this and endorsing it and all that. I, they certainly see me as a person of integrity today and they do ask me to do certain things that uh, uh, because of that, asking me to organize. There have been other political events they've asked me to chair because I, uh, I keep the playing field level when I get people on two opposing sides. Mm-hmm. I work hard at that.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, so Let me ask you. I, about that was, uh, I, I, I read that they played a recording of this uh, completely unknown language, and you or somebody in your family said you could understand most of
1: it that's right. because
2: it was really a dialect of uh, the language you already knew. Well, that's
1: amazing that you remember that after all this time. But that, that's true. to what this, this, this tribe of people, these Tasada people, they do exist. They weren't plastic mannequins. And uh, I don't think they ever lived in the caves. But at the conference, uh, well, nobody in the, seemed to know this at the time. It was supposed to be a tribe of 26 people. Well, actually, SIL had already had just was finishing translating uh, the New Testament into that language. <laughs> and there are about 20,000 people that speak that language. So they really weren't just a lost tribe of 26 people. Now their dialect of these Tassada was, uh, the accent was different, about the difference between American English as I speak it and British English as people in Great Britain speak it. So there was, there was, the tune was different. But it was, yeah, it, was, it wasn't my children that understood it, but it was, it was Clay and Helen Johnston and um, Tom and Eleanor Lyman uh, who had worked and spoke fluently that language four Wycliffe members. So, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you remember that whole story, don't you?
0: Let me try one more. Uh, This is another news story that you probably remember. It it didn't happen all that long ago, half a dozen years or so ago, something like that. A group in the Amazon, the uh, Yomani, Uh, You'll recall perhaps that there was a real splash. In fact, it it divided the anthropology community into two parts. Uh, It was a question of what is a proper relationship of an anthropologist with such a people and whether he might have violated his professional uh, duties in, in working with them. And uh, Tom was involved in that as well. If you'd like to explain that a little bit, Tom.
1: Yeah, and, and you all heard this news story, too. It was even on the cover of Newsweek and, and Asia Week, and a big uh, news story broke in, uh, the story broke in November. Well, maybe the first newspaper articles came out in September of 2000. That, uh, now, there's an American anthropologist whose name is Napoleon Chagnon, and he's an American. He is he's had a French last name. He pronounces it Shagnon uh Anglicized way. And uh he was then uh, uh had been teaching uh, for several years at University of California at Santa Barbara. And Chagnon uh in the nineteen nineties, by the by the early nineteen nineties, was the most famous, widely known American anthropologist in the world. And his textbook titled Yano Mamo the Fierce People is the most wide, at least up until the year 2000, uh, and probably maybe still today. Uh, in the year 2000, was the most widely read and widely sold textbook in the history of anthropology. In fact, it surpassed Margaret Mead's famous book, uh, Coming of Age in Samoa. Uh, and so, Chagnon, Mr. Chag Dr. Chagnon, was uh, world famous, and he's also. Uh, known among some of us as a missionary basher, because he certainly doesn't like missionaries. And he was studying these Yanomami people, started in 1963, a uh, uh, very interesting tribe of people living in Venezuela. And some of them live over on the Brazil side of the border. So suddenly in the fall of 2000, a report came out that Napoleon Chagnon and a colleague of his, uh, whose name has slipped me at the moment, uh, went down in 1968 to make a, a visit to these people. Chagnon had first gone there in 63. He went back in 1968, said this allegation, and that he and James Neal, that's the other guy, went there. James Neal is at University of Michigan, and James Neal uh, and Chagnon uh, purposely infected this tribe with smallpox so that uh, hundreds and perhaps thousands of these Yanomami people died of smallpox, said the report. And that, uh, that they did this because they wanted to see how fast a virgin soil population would succumb to a European disease to which they had no resistance. A virgin soil population is used in uh, certain aspects of science, uh, epidemiology, to refer to a population that has no immunity to a particular disease, such as smallpox, which is a very contagious disease, uh, you may know, um, so uh, I'd heard about, I'd heard, first heard report. I knew in 1992, Samantha Paul told me that they were working on this attack and a book was going to come out, and they told me this will destroy Chagnon. And uh, actually, I like public hangings too, and I, Chagnon is a mean gold guy. Oh, I'm tired of his missionary bashing all the time, so I thought, oh, well, I maybe gets a taste of his own medicine. I, I don't really want him to be hanged, but I wouldn't mind if he gets rebuked. So I was waiting to see this book come out, too. And uh, then in July of 2000, the publisher, forget who the publisher it was now, but a big publisher in the USA, sent me a copy, a pre-publication copy of the book. I think they wanted to see if I would uh, do an advanced review of it or something. And I might have, I mean, I might have considered that. And uh, when I got the book, uh. uh I realized when I—I I thought it was the book, but then when I started going through it, it was a mock-up uh, of the pre-publication. So you know, I, I thought the print looked a little blurry, and then I would come to a page and said "Place photograph seven about here," and then I realized I was reading uh, the pre-publication version. But it had the same cover on it that came out in the book when the book was released in uh, November 13th of 2000, just uh, just three days before the big be- the annual meeting of the AAA that year. So, but I'd had the book for a half a year, and when I got it, I thought, well, I'm gonna, I've got to read through this thing. Well, I started reading through this, I think it was about page 34 of the book. I started smelling a rat and realized, heavens to Betsy, this is yellow journalism. And uh, so I r- rolled up my sleeves and read through the whole book, brick by brick. And uh, I came to the part where he was, uh, Chagnone and his associate, James Neal, uh, purposely introduced the measles epidemic. This would be, you know, an international crime to do such a thing. This is what Nazis did uh, during World War II and a few other people gassing people. or uh, So, boy, this is really serious. I knew, personally, the two men that had written the original letter uh, making this accusation back in September. Um, so... Anyway, I thought, I'm going to focus on the most serious allegation. They had other allegations in there, which turned out not to be true, but the most serious one that they introduced the measles epidemic. So I, uh, I know quite a few of the Amazonian uh, ecological anthropologists, because that's my specialty, and most ecological anthropologists work in the Amazon. So I started phoning them around. Well, most of them hate Chagno, and he's got a lot of enemies, because he's uh, not only his missionaries, he seems to bash everybody else. Uh, and so then I started calling the missionaries, uh, contacting New Tribes Mission, because they work among the Onomami and have worked there since 1954, long before Chagnon went there as a uh, doctoral candidate in 1963. they had been already been there nine years, and uh, they knew Chagnon. And so uh, here I found out how the measles epidemic had begun, because these New Tribes Missionaries had documented the whole thing, and one woman, a uh, new tribes missionary named Dorothy Dye, had kept a record of everybody that, in all these villages that, that were coming down with the measles. And the, the measles epidemic broke out just at the same time that Chagnon... We know that Chagnon and James Neal uh, went in there. They went in by helicopter on, um, I forget the date now, September 5th of 1968. The measles epidemic started five days after they got there. Well, uh, the measles... Uh, Uh, when you're exposed to measles, it takes 11 to 15 days to come down with it. Nobody comes down with it in five days. So if you've never had measles before and somebody coughs on you that had it, uh, you'll come down with it, but it'll take 11 to 15 days. So I pulled that together, and then uh, the new tribes uh, uh, called their director, and they put me in contact with their lawyer and I'm grateful to say that the New Tribes Missionary lawyer cooperated with me all the way through on this and helped me with this. And uh, even though the person that started the measles epidemic was a New Tribes Missionary. Well, at least it was a New Tribes Missionary kid. A 27-month-old girl uh, named Lorraine, who was the child of two New Tribes Missionaries. And they had been out at their nearby city and wherever it was, I think on the Brazil side, came back and she brought the, the virus was in her body and she came down with measles a uh, f- few days after she got back there, and that's where it started from. So when what happened was they asked the AAA, I wrote this all up in a report and gave it to the president of AAA, and she uh, asked her secretary if I would read that at the business meeting of the AAA the largest audience I've ever talked to in my life was a group of anthropologists, 3,000 people that night in San Francisco in November of 2000. And, uh, and I had my stopwatch in my hand, and I spoke for three minutes and 37 seconds. And the place just exploded. And, uh, and then I sat down, and, then, and my whole, that whole expert testimony that I read from the microphone there uh, was, uh, is all on my website. So all you got to do is look up my name and look up Yanomami or Chagnon and you can read uh, the whole testimony in the background on it and some of the newspaper articles. Newspapers were calling me after that. Lots of newspapers and interviewing me on the phone after I got back to Dallas. And the and, uh, interesting thing, when I went up to the microphone uh, that night when pe- different people were talking, everybody was getting up and talking against Chagnon. And uh, James Neal, Chagnon was not there at the meeting. It was probably wise that he didn't go. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, but when I went up the microphone, I leaned. Uh, the, the moderator had said he. Some other people were giving their testimonies that had been down in Venezuela or something, and they were all getting up and speaking against Chagnon. And I got up and I leaned in the microphone. I said, "My name is Thomas Headline with the Summer to Linguistics." And these right across the whole auditorium, these three thousand people just went, Oh! We said a groan of, you know, of disgust. Who put him up there? And three minutes and, 37, three minutes and 37 seconds later, everybody was shouting at the moderator, let him tell or read the rest of his testimony. And I said, I, I looked over at the moderator, and he didn't say go ahead, so I, said, I leaned in the mic. I said, no, I said, I've given my whole testimony here in writing to the president of AAA, and it's, it's now on the record. You can get it from her and the other people waiting here to speak. And I sat down, and people... My wife and I were we were sitting in the fifth row there, and and uh, and peop- there were people from the reporters climbing over the chairs, sticking a mic in my phone right there. And I said, I can't talk to you now. I want to hear the rest of this. Next day, I talked to them. And, and and anyway, it's on the record. It's uh, they these people wrote in different newspapers that Thomas Headland was the one who proved that Chagnon could not have started the epidemic. And uh
0: oh, so is Shagam still bashing missionaries?
1: No, no. He's he's living in... He's, he left the university and left the academy and sort of living in exile. Oh, talk about exile. Yeah, he's living in exile at his, in rural Michigan somewhere. Now, he did... Yeah. I didn't mean that to be a joke. Are you all from Michigan or something? Well, he's, for, for him, it was... Uh, it's, it was a pretty sad end to his career. But he, and there were a lot of people that said, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. It's still the point is that he's a bad guy. So, uh, kind of funny.
0: I seem to recall a comment that he thought rather highly of you after that uh, incident. Well,
1: I yeah, wondered what he did. He did write me an email, but I didn't answer him. And, and because uh, the reason I didn't answer him is because some media people said, are you a friend of Chagnon's? And I said, no. I've never met the man, never had correspondence with the man, which is true. Uh, And I wasn't going to write him now, because then I wouldn't be able to say that. Uh, (laughs) And uh, because I knew why people were asking. They were saying, they were, I don't believe Hedman. I think he's just paid to do this. So, yeah, Uh, that's why I tried to keep myself uh, clean. Now, it's all blown over now. So in 2005... uh, I was at the AAA meeting, and uh, a friend of mine uh, came up to me, who's a professional anthropologist, named Douglas Hayward. Doug Hayward teaches anthropology at Biola University. And uh, we've been friends for years. And he says, he says, Tom, he says, guess what? He says, Chagnon is here at the meeting in this hotel. And I said, oh, I didn't think he'd ever come around again. He says he doesn't want to come out of his room, but he, he's on the same floor I man." And I, when he saw me in the hall, he asked me to come in and talk to him. And, and Tom Chagnon said to me, he says, do you know this Tom Headland guy? And, and Doug Hayward said, well, yeah, I do. And he says, well, he says, is he by any chance here at the meeting? And, and Hayward is telling me this. I said, yeah, he's here. And he says, well, would you ask him if he might be willing to uh, have lunch with me? So Doug Hayward said, uh, asked me that later that afternoon. And I said, well, you know, this is is five years later and uh, blowing over a bit. I said, well, uh, yeah. And I said to Doug, I said, I don't want to go by myself, though. I've got to find somebody to go with me. And he says, uh, uh, I said, maybe I'll get my office mate. But uh, or you could go. Would you go with me? So Doug said, oh, yeah, I'd like to go. So he called up. Chagnon knew his room number and said, Edlin, said he's willing to do this uh, if you do it uh, tomorrow." So the next day we met at a restaurant down the street, and uh, he brought along his uh, uh, his uh, companion, whose name is Bill Irons. You don't know these anthropologists, but uh, and those are the real names, by the way. I'm telling here, and uh, so we he bought me and Doug Hayward a nice lunch. And then he invited us to come up to his hotel room. So we were up in his hotel room for two and a half hours. And it wasn't until after we got up there. And then he says to me, he says, now I have a question, Tom. He says, and I says, yes, sir. He says, why did you defend me that night? And I, and I actually said to him, I says, well, it's not because I like you. (laughs) Hey, what have I got to lose? I can say anything I want to you guys too tonight because, hey, you know, <laughs> I've never seen you before. I'll never see you again. But I, uh, yeah, tell the truth. There. You know, one of my, one of my role models, he said, tell the truth. One of my role models is Alexander Solzhenitsyn, however you say his last name, where he ta- after he became a Christian, was released from the gulag. He says, stand up for the truth. He says, the truth is more powerful than all the guns in the world. Just tell the truth. And uh, I'll kick, get him okay. to give you catch right. your question in a minute. Let me finish. My Why don't you ask here.
0: your question? Stand up to the mic there, if you would, so we can get on the tape. But uh, what
1: did you say?
0: or I'll repeat it. Go ahead. Oh, did you finish me the story?
1: Yeah. Well, I just the closing thing was I told him I just I just uh, I haven't appreciated the way you've talked against uh, missionaries. Uh, Nap. That's that's what his first name is. He's called Nap by his. Friends, and so he was calling me Tom. So I called him Nap for Napoleon. But I said, I said those, those stories aren't true. But the thing is, I, the reason I did it is because uh, told those people that was because I was telling them the truth. You didn't, you didn't cause that measles epidemic, and I know that. And I'm not going to sit there and be quiet. So that's why I answered it. I know we're getting close to the we're getting line.
0: close to the witching hour. We have a, time for a couple of questions. You us to ask one.
3: I can't hear you, what?
0: Can Altruism? You repeat, can you repeat that question? Uh, that's a long question. Try to repeat it if you would, Tom.
1: Okay. Well, I think yeah, she, she asked me since you're in, involved in empowerment, and see, right away I'm thinking, oh, what? I didn't know I was involved in empowerment, <laughs> but uh, I suppose I am. But now, if you're asking me about the ethics of uh, studying indigenous people, is that? You jumped around. I'm not quite sure what your question is. Yes. Yeah, they can't hear you either. Is your mission empowerment, I think?
3: Thank you. Yes, is your mission empowerment? And if it is, as you work with individuals in exile, what precautions do you take as you realize that you are altering the lives of people. Some would even say, contaminating the lives of those individuals. What are your ethical obligations in that regard? And how did you respond to that in Agta, with Agta?
1: With the Agta people. Will the the well, do I have another hour for this? No, of course not. <laughs> um, my conscience is clear about this. I don't think of myself. Uh, Anthropologists are talking about empowerment now and so are you and and probably other people in your discipline, especially if you're in political science. But, uh, I'm, uh, I don't, that's not been on my radar screen. But I would like to give, I actually have worked for years to help the Agta people gain some power. If that, if that helps your question. So I guess I have been involved in that, but we didn't use that name, that term until it became popular in the last few years. But the Agta people, for example, their database is, uh, I went through the, if you want to know, I went, when I published the Agta database online with all their real names, this was all gone through the uh, uh, IRB, uh, University of North Dakota. I've gone through that whole thing, and the whole thing's been fully approved. And the Agta people, in fact, I was thinking of leaving their names off, and the Agta people insisted that their names be in that, their real names, and they want their photographs in there and that's all on my website too you can read the whole IRB review that's done and it actually be helpful to people that are anthropologists that are trying to work through that
3: Great, thank you Um, we're so appreciative of you being here and what you've done with your life. This is an amazing story. So, um, but can you help us understand? Help me understand this conflict of of um, principles between your sort of secular friends in the AAA, who would say that missionaries are just destroying indigenous cultures, versus the sort of Christian call from 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 Jesus to go into to all the world and spread the gospel and the sort of missionary call to, to go out there. Um, is there some truth to to some of the allegations that the missionary work has destroyed indigenous cultures or you know, you know where should Christians stand in that line of you know wanting to bring the gospel to all people? And yet, not wanting to unnecessarily, you know, uproot other parts of their cultures and things like that. And, and, you know, could you comment a little bit on that? I I think I saw a commercial just the other day talking about how many cultures are, are being destroyed one by one. They weren't blaming missionaries, but there's there is kind of a, a, a cultural call right now to be sensitive toward these rare indigenous cultures and not try to make them all, you know, turn them all into westernized civilizations. And yet, and yet, uh, you know, we do have this call as Christians to spread the gospel. So, you know, can you help us to sort of discern what of this we should take on as Christians and what to reject and this kind of thing? Yeah,
1: well, uh, there were a number of questions. And the first question uh, was, is there any truth to this? That is, that missionaries destroy cultures. I'm tempted to shout no, but I should probably say uh, 90% of the time they're not true. Especially if you're talking about uh, the since World War II. Now, in the 1800s, there were missionaries that were involved in even even uh, and the and the U.S. government and other countries too, but uh, of taking children away from their parents in order to deculturate them because their parents are savages. They're, no, but I, I've never met a missionary doing this in the. Anything near this, no, nobody, I don't know any missionaries myself that consider indigenous people as savages, that is, uh, they really don't even deserve to live. And certainly the best thing we can do is take their children away and put them in forced boarding schools, which of course the U.S. government did, and the Australian government and other places. Uh, rabbit-proof fence movies. Uh, that, that kind of thing doesn't happen, but the uh, I actually work as an apologist for SIL. I'm, I'm the point person. I have gun, will travel kind of thing. And, uh, and so I deal with this uh, all the time. Just the latest case was, uh, let's see, this is Friday today. Uh, last weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there was a four-day linguistic conference in French Guiana. And, and th- there were four SIL people there. It was a linguistic conference. And uh, other linguists were getting up. One was a French linguist and uh, getting up and uh, bashing SIL and accusing SIL of destroying uh, cultures and forcing. All, and it was all nonsense. they quoting uh, the founder of Wycliffe Bible Translating, saying that he'd said such a thing. I immediately uh, got an email from my colleague saying, what do you think about this? Everybody sends me these now because I'm one of these guys that stays up late uh, pursuing this because, you know, you know, I read Sherlock Holmes when I was a kid, and I think I know how to do this or something. So uh, I right away contacted our archivist at the Townsend Archives in Waxhaw, North Carolina, and said, did Uncle Cam ever say this? And he, he, he says, if he did, I'll find it before, before sunset. And the next morning I got an email from him, he says, I can't find it. So see, I, I t- wrote these guys back, I says, you tell him, if, if they know that the founder, Townsend, ever said this statement that it will be good when these people all are extinct. I mean, I can't believe he'd say this, but if he says that he has to prove that and not ask us to prove our innocence. Of course, he didn't know there were four S.I.L. people in the audience when he said this, so they uh, talked to him afterwards, but is it true? I mean, I I know of one case where a missionary with another mission, uh, this small uh, tribal group had a a little grove with six coconut trees on it, which they use as their emergency food. And he asked him, I need to cut down those coconut trees so I can build an airstrip here. So he talked him into that. He shouldn't have done that. That's a little different than accusing S.I.L. of dropping napalm on Indian villages, poisoning. This book, uh, how many of you have heard of this book? It was on the best New York Times bestseller list in 2005 for about six weeks, titled Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins. It has. It's mainly a harangue against the U.S. government, but it has uh, several pages haranguing against SL, Have eight allegations against SIL in that book. Three of the eight are criminal allegations. All eight of those are completely false. And SIL assigned me in 2005, 2006. I spent uh, at least one third of that 12-month period doing research on that book, working with SIL lawyers and. Uh, uh, we got them to republish the book and water that all down. Now they've published the third edition, taking it all out, because we, they knew that there was a possibility of a lawsuit. We weren't suing the author, because he would love a lawsuit. That would double his sales. We were, But uh, uh, we were threatening the S.I.L. was, wasn't threatening, but was writing uh, stern letters written by our lawyers uh, that uh, uh, you, you, we, we expect you to change this. And so uh, he, they, they did find it. Because those things are lies. They're not one footnote in the book. They're all completely false. And if they're not false, don't ask me to come and prove you they're false because you, you people who study logic teach logic, you can't just prove a negative. And go ask Mr. Perkins to prove that they're true. But of course, you're not going to do that because I can tell you folks, we don't drop napalm on Indian villages and we don't poison Indian wells in order to get the land for the Brazilian government. It's crazy stuff. <laughs>
0: I can see you're going to have a lot of people sitting at your table at lunch and uh, supper and breakfast uh, for the rest of this time. It is 10 minutes, 5 minutes plus after 8. Can I just mention Mark Ritchie's book? Yeah, Mark I'm
1: Ritchie. Aware
2: of that. Yes. And he has brought a Christian, who,
1: uh, Shema, who became a Christian, from the Shoefoot name Jungle Man. Jungle Man is, is the father and Shufut is the son of the shaman. Yeah. This is a book he's referring and by, Mark Ritchie, titled Spirit of the Rainforest. Spirit
2: of the Rainforest. Yeah. And uh, he has brought this shaman, now who is now a Christian, to debate Shagal. Uh,
1: Shagnon, yeah.
2: Or Shagnon, yeah. anywhere that, that they can meet. And so he has gone to a number of anthropology departments around the states. Yeah. And right. this man has... Uh, really pointed out. And of course the book points out that, that what, uh, what a, a blessing it is that there are some parts of their culture, which they, under Christian influence and in becoming Christians, they will abandon. And yeah. it, some of them, it are, it's a very graphic book. If you haven't read it, um, Mark Ritchie was at one of the, uh, Urbana missionary conventions a few years ago and had a display about this. And, uh, if you don't have his book, uh, I'm not sure where you can get it. But it really, I think, uh, really clarifies what was going on and how it's not uh, the kind of thing
1: that. Yeah. I will vouch for. He's talking about a book by Mark Ritchie published in 1995 uh, on, on the Yanomami people and uh, a lot of the story, but not the measles epidemic. And this is 1995 before the measles and uh, i had a role in helping mark Ritchie put that book together so uh and, and it, it's 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 a true story so i admit the shame yeah let's let's thank our speaker you didn't let's thank you man he's there but he's great thank
0: you i think we have a mixer scheduled any announcements uh Ready?